Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fahodier, this is the African Liberation Media. We are here with a special guest, Brother Tashango. Also seated on my left is Brother Makaru, and across from me directly is Brother Amos. So much to do, so little time to do it in. That comes from Brother Kwame Ture, a.k.a. Stokely. Carmichael, uh, I know that one of the subjects or topics of interest to Africans out there throughout the diaspora is the neutering. I just cut through the chase, the neutering of African-Americans inside the American body politic. We are faced with an option of choosing from a greater bigot or a lesser bigot. We're talking about hair fewer and lunch bucket Joe. That's been of particular interest to Africans. It seems to me as if the only progressive voices, one is a young sister out of New York, uh, AOC and the other sister being Sister Omar, who dares to articulate views outside of the acceptable political discourse. They are the only hopes, it seems. Sadly, we cannot rely on the black political caucus, rockers, whatever you want to call it. Uh, one of the things we might want to touch on, I will uh, turn this. Uh, program over to Brother Amos, and he will give us a, a holistic uh, introduction as to the uh, special guest we have, Brother Tashango, what he brings to the fray, etc. Thank you, Gullah Jack, a Bieber for Hodier, African family. Today, we have on the show someone who you're very familiar with if you've been listening to our program. Brother Tashango and Billy Shaka, who is an educator, who is a scholar, and who is also a brother of the African warrior tradition. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight, the African warrior tradition, the African arts of self-defense and self-offense. And we've talked about this on previous programs, for those of you who listened to the program we did with Brother Sifu Stephen Muhammad, uh, we, we dealt with the importance of why you need to train. But today we're gonna really get into the history of our tradition as African warriors. Uh, so uh, we're very honored to have on Brother Tashango who brings a great deal of knowledge on this topic. And uh, I'm gonna be asking a few questions that hopefully enlighten you, the listeners, as to our tradition, our history, and its importance. Brother Tashango, how you doing today, brother? Man, I'm B.B. Fjordier, brother. I'm, I'm magnificent, man. It's good to be back on the show. African Liberation Media is definitely my, one of my favorite podcasts. Thank you, Brother Amos. Uh, thank you, Baba Gullah Jack. And uh, bro thank you, Brother Makaru, uh, for having me back on here again, man. Thank you. And B.B. for Hodier. Arche, Arche. So, 
Tashango, we know, you know, your history and education and how valuable you are in teaching, you know, young black males, young black females and raising them into African men and women on the right educational path. But tell us how you got into fighting, how you got into training. Yo, um, I know we've been talking about this for a minute because we're both uh, practitioners in uh, different combat systems. But for me, man, it goes actually back to my first day of school. I um, I got stabbed in the hand with a pencil by another student. And um, his name was Patrick. If I find him today, it's on. But, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyways, I got stabbed in the hand with a pencil. I had no idea how to defend myself. Now, we're talking about, like, kindergarten here. So I'm like four or five years old and I went home and I told my mother, like, I don't ever want to go to school to, to, again. This is horrible. Um, this is the worst thing that's, you know, happened up until this time. And my mother was like, don't worry about it. You got to go back, you know, school. My mother's very big in education, which is great. You know, my mother's a teacher. So she's like, you got to get back in there. You, you know, when we have different traditions in our family and one of the codes we have is you don't quit. So I was like, all right, I'll go back thinking it's not going to happen again. But the second day of school, man, Patrick wild out again with the pencil. I put my hand up and he stabbed me in the hand with the pencil again. Now, the way I remember it, man, I had to go to the nurse's office. They had to pull the pencil out. I remember the nurse being very, uh, like, unsympathetic. And I realized at that point it was like, man, like, I'm up in this school thing on my own. I'm going to have to learn how to, like, protect myself or defend myself. man. And so that was, like, my introduction to fighting. But I didn't know how to fight at all. I just I knew how to almost like be victimized. You know, you have flight, fight, flight, fight or freeze. Well, mm -hmm. um, you know, I had, I was still in the freeze mode. So I froze like every single time that in the beginning um, that I was being, you know, dealing with confrontation. So um, I also had cousins and uh, these cousins that I had, um, I looked up to a lot and they would like, they grew up in a much rougher area than me. And when I would go hang out with them, they had these like things. This is like way before UFC, but they used to have us like be in circles and fight different kids. Um, and I remember being in there and having to fight this kid and they wouldn't let me out the circle until I finished fighting this other kid, man. And it, like, you know, they talk about bullying now, but when I was coming up, man, it, that term like didn't even really exist. This was just like, like I didn't think my cousins were ever bullying me. I really like to this day appreciate them being tough on me and trying to make me tougher. So how, how old were you at this point? Man, that that you <laughs> that's probably like eight, eight, eight or nine, like being pushed into the circle. I remember hitting this kid and I killed my, like it hurt my hand so bad, man. And then like, I tried to get out the circle. I can almost remember tears running down my face and them throwing me back into it. And I'm just going at it with this other kid, man. And um, yeah, it's like eight or nine. And then I, I remember um, my nose used to bleed real fast. So I got in there and somebody hit me in my nose. Everybody would go crazy like, oh, my nose was bleeding all over the place. And then I would tackle the dude and take him to the ground. And and then, and then I'd like win the fight and people would be like, oh, oh, you know, I got surprised by that. Um, I remember I got into another fight on the playground with a, um, an Asian kid. And this kid, like I ran at him. I tried to punch him and he flipped me, man. And I hit the ground and it knocked the wind out of me. I saw the whole sky go above my head. And I was like, Oh, what was that? Whatever that is, I want to learn it. I want to do this to somebody else. But um, the, the dude helped me up, and he had told me that he was taking judo, and that was the first time I had ever heard like about any type of martial arts. Man. Um, so yeah, that was that was kind of like my first introduction. But um, I think what made it real for me was um, 
my, the father figures that I had in my life too. So I had, I call my Baba, you know, you call a stepfather in America, but it's really the father who stepped up mm. and, um, he had trained in martial arts. Um, and my Baba, he, um, used to get beat up a lot by his older brother. And because like he said, he was going to go learn and train in the martial arts so that he could go and fight and defeat his older brother. Um, which is funny because the more he trained, um, like he did Golden Gloves boxing first, and he had to like hide all of this from his mother. Um, and then from there, he did Goju Karate, Goju Ru Karate in Chinatown, and he was the only black student there. And he used to tell me stories about him going down and training down there, and they would like he was the Uki, so they basically would beat the mess out of him every single time. And for years, he did that, and he just was getting beat down. And I remember him telling me these stories, and I'm thinking, yo, my Bob is like the toughest man on the planet to me besides my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, why would you allow yourself to get beat down like this? And that's what he explained to me. Like in martial arts, there's the hammer and there's the nail. And like in the beginning, you're never the hammer, you're the nail. And you take a while of these getting these beat downs, learning how to fall properly, learning how to take a hit. And after a little while, you know, he said he became the hammer. That, that story he kind of gave me, like that idea, that concept really stuck with me. And helped me get through a lot of different martial arts and a lot of different like I was wrestling that came up next or whatever. Um, but also my Baba was a track star and um he used to run over in South Boston and at the end of the race, a lot of the kids would gather up and be, try to beat him down and jump him. And he told me a story of how him and this other martial art instructor he had had to fight their way out of South Boston and get back to Dorchester. Mm. And he said, like, his instructor was like, I'll take the four on this side. You take the two on that side. And he was just impressed because instructor was done with the four before he was done with the two. So um, uh, he, he also did Taekwondo in college. And when he came into my life and um, he, he first he was dating my mother and married my mother, we used to wrestle on a regular basis. Like, and he would just, it, you know, it's interesting. He would never hurt me. He would always, like, he would, like, rough me up. And show me how strong, you know, how strong he was. But it was always like setting the idea that he's like the lion of the house. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, a young lion that just had to, you know, try to fight with him. But, you know, like I say, he never heard me. Like, but he was tough for me, man. He would, you know, put me in body scissors. He had all these like old school kind of wrestling moves and, you know, chops and punches and stuff that I just thought were awesome. So you, you were in uh, what, middle school around this time? Yeah, so now we're talking about, like, this is 12, 13, 14, 15. Yeah, man. Okay. And, um, yeah. I mean, I, I just look back at it. I, like, I highly advocate to parents to, like, like wrestle with their children, man. Like, you almost see when animals roll with each other, they don't hurt each other, right? Mm-hmm. But it's this contact, man. And when I went to Senegal, you saw, like, the Senegalese babies would be, like, stretched out by their parents. And I remember looking at it and be like, oh, my goodness. Like over here, our Western sensibilities or whatever would tell us like, oh, no, that's that's too much, man. Like, but they're stretching this kid out to make him stronger and make make his bones and his blood flow and everything. And they're giving these real serious baby massages. And I'm saying that because like as they get older, they need the physical contact. And it doesn't it doesn't like if a child hits you in a too hard, you, you got to, you know, you let them know like that's too you don't do that with Bobby. You don't that's too rough. And they'll learn what's like appropriate wrestling and what's not appropriate wrestling type thing. And then they also learn when they're in a real fight where they should hit somebody, which is what the stuff you're not supposed to be doing. And I mean, that's true because there's so many children over here that have no idea about fighting at all. You know, the only thing they know how to do is 
go get a gun. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a best friend. I didn't live in a rough neighborhood growing up, but my cousins did. And my best friend lived in a really rough neighborhood. Um, it's called Mattapan. We used to call it Murder Pan. But um, when I hung out with him, I would kind of get into altercations there too. Um, and I was ready to throw fish. And them dudes was never ready. They never wanted to throw fish. It was always like they had knives, had guns. So I, I didn't, I couldn't fight over there at all, man. And, and he was quick to be like, nah, he would look at me and be like, nah, they, they're not going to get down like that. But at least when I had my cousins around, because they were so tough that they could have, we call shoot the fair one, is they would be like, nah, come on, we're going we're gonna to box it out, fight like that. So, you know, I, I teach I teach two classes now. One of the classes is um, knowledge of self and environment. Mm-hmm. And the other class is African combat sciences. And, um, you know, I'm super passionate about both of them. But in, in the knowledge of self and environment, I think, is like the key to when you're getting into this is like knowing who you are and knowing where you came from. So it, it was my Baba, but the other like strong man I had in my life was my grandfather. And um, my grandfather, he he did boxing in Philadelphia and he did boxing, I think in Harlem. And he's just like the toughest man I ever met in my life. Man. He's tough as nails. Um, I, he was just like a super protector and provider and not just for his children. But um, just for the community, man, like people used to literally come to him if they had problems with almost anything man. and he would be on it. And um, I know he also he, he created he bought this house in, um, in Queens and he created a 17 room um, place for men who were down on their luck mm-hmm. to come and stay. And you're talking about a man who did that like and he had three daughters and a wife. But my grandfather, you know, carried two pistols, a knife. He, like, you didn't mess with him, man. He was super official. He lived by a code. He lives by a code because he's 90 years old and still strong as could be. And, um, and like, nobody would mess with his daughters or his wife because he was just, like, he was about that life, man. He grew up, like, in a time where, like, he knew Bumpy Johnson way back, you know, because he lived in Harlem. Um, so it was a different caliber, man. But that's, these are, like, you know, Bumpy Johnson, he might have been a gangster. Even when he got into the drugs, he went, you know, went bad. But before that, man, he was like no cussing. You know, he was very strict. You know, this was Harlem when people dressed up just to go outside and walk down the streets like that. Mm. But um, my grandfather to me, man, like, it's funny. Like, do stuff. Like, the other day, um, I saw a brother who was stranded with his wife and his daughter. I mean, wife and his son. And I got out, you know, and gave him a jump. But my grandfather used to do stuff like that all the time. He would like pay other people's tolls when he went through the toll. He would he he would even like pull over the side of the road and help somebody fix their tire and he would time himself on how quickly he gets the tire off and back on. Mm. It was like a challenge to him. And um so like he he's like he was a major hero for me growing up. So um I don't necessarily see him as a as a martial artist, but I see him as like exemplifying what I saw a strong man. And then seeing a strong man, I was like, Oh, he knows how to to how to defend himself. He he's trained in the boxing. He trained I asked, I said, Pop man, how'd you become good with the with the gun? And he said, When I started I was horrible. So I had to go to range nonstop. Just going, 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 going until I got better at it. And I, I really like that, man. I really like the fact that he was like, You gotta get out of your comfort zone and you gotta train, man. But he's like, men don't complain, they train. Like, you know, that's essentially the what I got from watching him. Um and just to add onto the lineage, because like saying knowledge itself is huge. His father's name was J.C. Kelly, and he was from um, he was from Philly, and he used to bootleg liquor, and he was known for being real tough and real respected also, and like he would help people, giving people money and stuff like that. But he was not to be messed with. 
And, um, you know, so that's like, I feel like the more I studied my own lineage, the more I was like, yo, this is, this is in my blood to, to, to do these type of things. You know what I'm saying? So as you came up out of middle school and transitioned into high school, did you still have confrontations or fights going on at this time? Oh yeah, man. So after, um, I, I got my best friend who I was just talking about, he and I got into a lot of trouble in school. Um, and I just linked up with him after like 20 years. I hadn't seen him. And it's funny, man, we could just laugh about it, but we used to get in so much trouble in school that my mother would be at the school like almost every day, man. And we would be in the office and it was like, like it was a setup, man, because he, we, they wouldn't put us in the same class, but if my best friend got in trouble, uh, I know he's going to be in the office. So I would try to get in trouble to get to the office. And, um, we were both basically class clowns though. We weren't, um, you know, we weren't tough, but then he and I together though, we would be outside on the recess and we both of us could clown people hard. We'd be on a bus talking trash, talking about people's mothers and stuff. You know, all those old school ones, like, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, your mother is so broke. She can't even pay attention, you know, saying all that crazy stuff, man, that we used to say, just clowning each other, you know, it took your mother an hour to cook minute rice, all of that type of stuff, just to get jokes from everybody. And it would always break down the fight. And um, and even my, my cousins and other older kids at the school, they would beat both of us up at the same time, man. It, it became kind of fun that, like, you know, it's my best buddy. We're going to run. We're going to get caught. And they're going to beat us up. But it wasn't like we were never worried about, like, we're going to get killed or stomped out or nothing. It was mainly like these dudes, these other guys are just going to mash us, you know, that type of thing. Okay. So that was – that we're talking about – that was up until sixth grade. And then I got – my mother said I didn't get kicked out of school. Um, I said that they asked me to nicely leave, but whatever it was, I ended up having to leave that school and um, I had to go to private school, man. And um, I, could, I had done well on the test and I did well in the interviews. So I ended up going to private school and private school, You people think, oh, you know, you must've been better than because you're going to a school that you got to pay all this money to. Uh, that was like, I got in a fight like almost every single day at private school, man, in the beginning, man. My seventh grade year was like one of the worst years of my life, man, in terms of I was the only black kid in the class. So the racial, I I mean, I was around kids who they were calling me the N-word like left and right. Hmm. And the school went from seventh grade up to 12th grade. So I was getting jumped by like 12th graders and 11th graders some days. 10th graders. I mean, you you name it, man. I had to, I had to go to, you know, I had to go to a fight regularly there man i might get in six seven fights a week hmm. um, and, and most of these fights were with white kids oh that's all that was there man that's all that was there and they wouldn't get in trouble like you know i would go and tell an administrator and the administrator would say like well if you don't like it here you should leave <laughs> or they would say like you know um well our kids don't do that this is an elite private school we don't get into fights and arguments like that and i'm like nah these kids threatening to kill me i remember one time we went to a baseball game man and um during a baseball game, a group of the kids from the other team chased me with bats and said they was going to beat me like they beat Rodney King. Damn. And I remember just running for my life, man. I wasn't, you know, there's a big difference between fighting and getting jumped, man. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But, man, I had to run from these kids. Um, I remember it was a lot of stuff like that. I remember I was on the bus. 11th grader told me, I hate how you people talk. And uh, he busted my nose and he dragged me underneath the seats on the bus. And uh, one of the things I learned from that is, like, you know, with Art of War, terrain is everything. So when he was standing up, I was still sitting in the seat. And I look back on these fights, and I'm like, man, I should have learned. Like, you never allowed a person to have the, the upper hand on you. When he's standing above me, because he hit with his fist coming down, it caught me in my nose, and my nose opened up immediately. 
like I said, I was I'm a gusher anyways, but the um that fight my mother learned about because and only because we had to wear a jacket and tie and my white shirt had become almost like pink from all the blood that came out and then the dirt from being dragged underneath the bus seats, man. So, um, and then my mother came on the bus like, who did this to you? And nobody would say anything. The bus driver didn't say nothing. So the more these fights happened, the more I was like, yo, I, I can, you know, like in martial arts, you can either be a victim or you, you can, you can be victorious minded and you can train and you can fight back. And I had a, um, one time I got in a fight right in front of this teacher's classroom and the teacher came out and said, you know, I've seen you get in like three or four fights. You suck at fighting. Why don't you come out for the wrestling team? He was cap- He was coaching the wrestling team. Excuse me. He's coaching the wrestling team. Now he's like, he looked like Major Dad um, from that show. If you used to watch that, but he looked like Diesel, military, and he would be. He talked straight to me every single time. Like, yo, you're horrible. This, that, and the other. And I was like, wrestling. That's that's horrible. I'm not doing that. That's corny. You gotta wear that little singlet. I wasn't with that at all. But man, I went out for the wrestling team just because he well. Also, because I was playing basketball and I got cut from the basketball team on ninth grade basketball team. Now I could cut before that. But anyways, man, when I got in there on the wrestling thing, man, yo, I got slammed. I got thrown all over the place. And I was like, yo, what is this? It was something new and different. I do want to say, though, my mother had put me in a karate before that. And I started doing karate. I did it for like a year and a half. I think I got to a yellow belt or something. But um, I didn't feel like the karate was like. It was it wasn't working for me with the street fights, man. Like mm-hmm. I would get ready to do be standing in front of me. They let us go at each other, man. I could try to, you know, use a low punch, you know, like a punch coming from my hip on them, and <laughs> I would still get wrecked, man. Like so, my first things with karate weren't weren't always that positive. So, but when I got to wrestling, man, like when we, wrestling now, we're talking high school mm-hmm. or like right right before high school. Wrestling like changed things up for me, man. Like I started. Uh, I started slamming cats, man. I started like doing a lot, like duck unders when they're throwing punches at me. I started, you know, doing ankle picks, all types of stuff, man. Bear hugging cats, like just single leg take take down, double leg takedowns on people, and it was making a, a big difference. Um, but in the in the mats and stuff, like my coach would make me wrestle two or three times in a match, and he like I was like less than one forty, and he had me wrestle against somebody who was like one sixty. Had me go against somebody who was a 145. It didn't, the, the weights didn't even matter. He just wanted me to get as much experience as possible. And I was getting mashed, man, like destroyed. That was like, that's when that, that whole thing that my, my, my baba had told me about being a, the nail. Man, I got hammered for like the first two, three years of wrestling. Mm. Were you the only uh, brother on the wrestling team? Or was it, you know? Yeah, that's funny, man. Actually, what happened was the year after I was there, they did like an experiment where they brought in more kids from the inner city. Okay. And, of course, all of us wanted to do basketball. But when I was playing basketball, they told me it's an all-white team. They were like, keep your street moves in the street. Because I'm, like, I'm doing, you know, like, bounce passes and, like, stuff that they're just, like, you know, that's too – those are, like, street moves. You know, I'm watching and one at the time. But it also was – you know, it's partly racial because they're, like, oh, the black kid going to do the street moves. So, but when they came out for the team, same th- type of thing happened. Some of them made the team, but a couple of them, they got cut, too. And we had to play the, the schools. You had to play sports three seasons. And it was like, what else were we going to do? The biggest sport at the school was hockey. And the second biggest was wrestling. Um, and then they joined the wrestling team. So, uh, and there was other, like I had told the other brothers, like, yo, look, man, you getting beat up. They call you the N-word. You know, they calling me that. They're beating us up, not because, you know, 
they don't like us. It, it, of course, it's they didn't like us, but it's also because we're like we're black. Yo. That's what I was thinking at the time. So I'm like, yo, why don't we band together and we'll fight these dudes, man? And we'll, we could wreck them as a group. The, they wouldn't go for it, man. In the beginning, it took a long time before they would get with that idea. And in fact, truth be told, man, like I had to fight some of them in order to get them to be down with what we were trying to do. And eventually, like when we get around my, my, my I did 10th grade, I had to do 10th grade twice. But by the time I got to my second 10th grade, something just switched on and I no longer was the, the nail, man. I was a hammer and people around the school had seen like my, my wrestling record was coming out real good. Um, I had I had to do, I did cross country to help me get in shape for wrestling and also did track. And then during the summers, man, we would, we would travel, man. We would, our coach would bring us to different places, man. We went to Pennsylvania and trained one summer. Another summer we went to, um, another summer we went to uh, Iowa. And that's, that summer was huge for me because Iowa was one of the biggest wrestling places. I got to meet Dan Gable. Um, at the time it was Joe Williams. Um, and Joe Williams was, uh, he had a record of 129 and nine in his overall career. And he was just like amazing at this. And I didn't even know there was a lot of like real great black people in, uh, in wrestling. Like today, one of my favorites is Jordan Burroughs. And he's, he's just amazing in wrestling, man. So anyways, man, I, I, after going to that camp, man, my skills really stepped it up. And like a lot of the other black kids, they wanted to be protected by us. They wanted to be down with the other people who had trained, man. So wrestling had a major impact on, on me and life in general. You know what I'm saying? All right. So as you travel through high school and you, you know, start to become a proficient and actually a good wrestler, once you transition out of the school, the private school, that is, um, like when do you start actually training in martial arts forms or martial arts styles? Yeah. So that's interesting, man, because um, after wrestling, like I went to college, um, I went to Howard and at Howard, I went out for the wrestling team and it was a bit, I had, I had competed in the States several times, I competed in New England, I competed in all these different things. But then when you got to college and Howard at the time was division one wrestling and it has some amazing, some guys now that are in jujitsu that are awesome. I mean, there's some of the uh, awesome Brazilian jujitsu guys now. But the wrestling team was like no joke, man. And, and they practiced early in the morning. And I had just come from an all-boys private school. And now it's at Howard, which felt like an all-girls school to me. Um, so I really couldn't stick to the, the, uh, the discipline. And so I, I, started, I gave up wrestling. But part of that also was my freshman year at Howard, um, I got into a huge altercation, man. Um, and it's, it's, it was horrible because... Um, getting into college, I was like, man, I made it. Like, I don't, you know, like how people think, like, I don't have to deal with no more foolishness, this, that, and the other. But um, I had a roommate who was stealing from me, and he was on a tennis team. And uh, he had stolen a couple of my gold chains. He stole a pair of my Timberlands. So um, when he came back one day, man, I challenged him, man. I was like, yo, that's it, man. Like, um, you, you, I'm gonna, you got to deal with me now, man. Like, and he had gone over, his girlfriend lived in a football dorm, and he had told, uh, her to tell the football players I was going to jump them. So then they got together a whole bunch of people, man, a whole bunch of football players, and they all came over to um, my dorm to fight me, man. Hmm. So um, I would like to say that, like, and at this time too, I haven't, I haven't, I still haven't been training any martial arts to answer your question. But I was at the top of my like my thing in wrestling, 
Um, and the way these guys had come over, they came up the emergency exits, they came up the steps. And it, it was like, I came out of my door. And as soon as I came out the door, I ran right into them. And they were like, yo, what's up, man? You talking this trash, that's and the other. Um, and they had, I didn't say this, but they had called before to see if I was in the room. And um, they was trying to like cuss me out on the phone. So I hung up the phone. And, um, you know, it, it just make a long story short, bro. It was, it was really ugly, man. Like, there's a big difference, like I was saying, between fighting and between getting jumped. And um, the more, like I saw, coming from where I'm coming from too, I, I wasn't used to dudes from the South be like this. Football players in college are huge, man. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, some of these cats, six five, six seven, you know, 250 plus, all, you know, all of them is like that. You know what I'm saying? They're all big dudes. Lucky for me, man, a lot of them didn't get challenged, I think, growing up because the way they were punching, they were using the like the hammer fist. So they were using more of the softer part of their hands as opposed to punching with like the two knuckles that, that I learned to punch with. You know what I'm saying? But um, I was walking down the dorm and they're pushing me around. We're going back and forth. I'm knocking on doors trying to get people to come out the doors. And it ended up broke, breaking down to the broadest. This good brother that I know, um, he got, you know, he said, we shouldn't fight this, that, and that. He's from Africa, like from the continent. Um, and he was trying to stop it. But man, these dudes, they just mowed right through him. And, you know, in any fight, there's like this moment where I caught the eyes with one dude and it was like, oh, nah, this dude's not talking. He's ready to, like, this dude wants to kill me, man. So I saw it in his eyes, man. And he was the first person to come at me and uh, he hit me and he had on a ring and the ring cut my face and gave me a busted eye at the same time. But um, his boys charged us so fast, we got pushed into a room and he got punched in the back of the head by one of his own boys. And um, I thought his own boy knocked him out, but he was saying later on when we had to go to court and everything, I, it, he fell into my lap, man. I, I threw him in a, in a guillotine like right away and fell into a chair. I fell back into a chair and these dudes are just beating on me. And he's, I'm choking him out while they're beating on me. Man. Um, and it, it happened real quick. You know how most fights are like, it can't be longer than like 20, 30 seconds. And it real quick. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't get knocked out as far as, you know, and then I, when I woke, when I basically when I they left out of there, um, I, I threw him to the ground, and I started to get up and chase after them. And then I learned another thing about fighting because by the time I got downstairs, I had taken off my shirt. And uh, one of the things you learn with fighting is uh, when the police come, whoever has their shirt off is the first to get arrested. <laughs> yeah. So that's a lesson for people. <laughs> you can give an estimate. It was you versus how many? Yo, so um, in the court, it was like, they said it was 12 kids, 12 of the college students they had caught, but they're like 18 had literally come up the steps, man. Wow. So, um, and that kind of changed my reputation at the school. Not like I wanted it to be, man, but it was like, yo, this dude gets in the fights and he challenged, it said, it, I think in this, I'm trying to find the school newspaper, but I think it said something like somebody in Drew Hall challenged the, the football team to a fight, the entire football team or something. And um, I know I was, I, you know, I ended up having a lot more, um, that fight left me with a lot of mental issues, I'll say. Like, I, I, you know, mental issues in terms of, I became super paranoid, man. Like, I thought that, like, every big person was trying to jump me type thing. You know what I'm saying? I ended up, I had to go, uh, it was anger management or whatever out of that, and community service and stuff like that. Man. But also, a part of me, I wanted to sue the school, man, for allowing us to go down because the security was, like, whack, man. They didn't help at all. The police even said that they would they didn't want to come up up to the thing until it was over. That's when I learned that they were like largely there to write reports, man, because they said they didn't want to get hurt. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it was reports that somebody had a gun, but nobody had a gun. So they weren't coming up there, man. It was crazy, though. But again, it's back to this thing where, like, we have this idea that we, like, somebody's going to come and save us. Nobody's going to save us except ourselves. So that hit me hard, man. And, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a tough rebound, man. Like, it was a couple years before I was, like, myself again. You know what I'm saying? So was that your last fight at Howard? No, nah, man. Unfortunately, <laughs> that, that opened it up because it made it look like, um, because I wasn't, I only had like a cut up eye and bruised up a little bit. It made it look like, um, it just wasn't good. It didn't, it didn't look good for the football players. So it kept on messing with me after that. Um, but then also, man, you gotta understand when I was at Howard, it was rough, man. That area was really rough, man. So there was a couple of times like people tried to rob me, man. Like I was on a train my first time with two of my friends and a dude tried to rob me on a train until he seen who I was with. And, um, there's another time, like, they, we used to have this, there's this street right behind it called Gresham or whatever, but dude, the Gresham boys, man, they was like, they was trying to rob us left and right, man. So I had to use, I had gotten a couple fights for that. Also, I mean, we'd go to clubs, we'd go to house parties. There were fights would break out left and right and, and those things too, man. I remember I was at a nightclub one time and it got so bad that the bouncers, like, closed the doors and just basically stood outside the club and let everybody fight each other. Man. So I, I've been in some, some rough places and I've tried to learn as much as I can from those. And then, you know, like, my friend who I grew up with, and then even my friend, like, when in college, it was hard to have friends, because everybody was like, oh, you, you, you like, you like to fight or something. <laughs> but, um, you know, like, they would even say, like, it's almost like you attract this type of stuff. And it's like, nah, I just, I don't like, um, I don't like injustice. I don't like people being victimized. And I definitely don't want it to happen to people that I care about. You know what I'm saying? So I think that was part of it too, man. So he just wasn't a pushover. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a piece of it, man. Um, Yeah, but you said about when you're speaking directly to um, like what got me into martial arts, though. Too, I don't know if we want to go back to that question. Um, But like I have to say, man, my mother was real strict about what we were allowed to watch, like what I was allowed to watch in terms of television, and I was allowed to pick up like one television show a week. And um, also, there was only like a few movies I was allowed to watch. And she always wanted to be something like positive, something that like showed me positive black people. So there was one movie that I was allowed to watch. And when every time like I had a babysitter or something, and that was um, Barry Gordy's Last Dragon. Um, you remember that joint? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a classic. Yeah, man. So I used to watch that like 60, 70 times, man. Like every single time I got the opportunity, I was watching that. And um it's funny because I read Tom Mock's book uh, more recently, and uh, in the end of the book, he he does what part he talks about. He does an outline basically for part two that he wanted to have, but you know, according to the story, it looks like he didn't sign for the money they were trying to give him. He had a fallout with Barry Gordy, and you you know, he didn't have um, the career that he could have had in terms of movies. But that movie man hit me hard, man, because I just thought to do. I thought Tom Mock in the movie as the Last Dragon was real, real cool. I thought that Shonuff was an awesome, awesome villain, man. Like, I thought he, you know, I use it, parts of it with my students today to teach about, like, cultural misorientation. Um, but, I mean, the video, the movie back in the day was like a black superhero to me. It was awesome, man. Mm. So, um, and, and I grew up in time. I had never heard of the Enter the Dragon. I had never heard of, like, really Bruce Lee. It was Bruce Lee Roy, you know what I'm saying? Like, that was the dude. But from that, I watched Enter the Dragon. And even in Enter the Dragon, man, everybody else was gravitating towards Bruce Lee. But I wasn't, man. I was gravitating towards Jim Kelly. One reason is my grandfather's name is Jim Kelly. Mm. And the second reason is, man, I thought Jim Kelly was the dude in that one. 
man. I was upset that he got killed, of course. You know what I'm saying? Right. By uh, Han or whatever. But, man, I thought he was the man in terms of he was smooth. Um, he just, I mean, in that movie, I don't know if people realize this, but in that movie and in um, Black Belt Jones, which I watched, you know, I got Black Belt Jones too and all of that. But every movie, he he was getting an altercation with the police. Right. These crooked cops, man. Right. He would beat the cops down. You know what I'm saying? Right. So while everybody was doing the Bruce Lee, like, what? Like, I was the one who was doing the, the, the Jim Kelly where he's like, ooh. You know, he be doing these woos. There's a scene in Three the Hardway when he's like, uh, you trying to set me up? And then he starts hitting him. He's like, ooh. And like he's doing this sound effect, <laughs> man, that, that I used to love, man. I was just like, yeah, Jim Kelly's the man, yeah. And then I started to, like, read his quotes and stuff. And he would say quotes, man, that were like, heroes come and go, but legends are forever. Mm. He said, uh, vision without execution is just hallucination. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, in life you have three choices, give up give in or give it your all. And then uh, he had another one that was work hard until you no longer have to introduce yourself. Uh, he said, your determination and focus will dictate your success. He said, like, stay busy. If you keep your grind right, it'll keep your mind right. I was like, yo, this dude, you know, and he, and the last one I would say is he said, the world makes room for a man who shows he knows. And I was just like, oh, man, this, 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 he's serious, he's focused, he's determined, and he was victorious. And that was one of his heroes that like developed for me. I was like, yo, and, and he didn't have like the movies that he could have had either. And I think for a lot of same reason, probably Time Out uh, uh, didn't have that career either, because they they weren't willing to compromise. He wasn't gonna do no shuffling, no no, mm. you know, Yaza, none of that stuff, man. He was like a real to me, like represented the black men that I knew. You, you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. So yeah, he had like a couple other quotes from him. He said, "Are your excuses more important than your dreams?" Um, he said, they told me it couldn't be done. Now they asked me how I did it. Uh, he said, uh, you were born to win, but to be a winner, you must plan to win, prepare to win and expect to win. So it was like this philosophy that he had, man. you know, I, I appreciate Bruce Lee, his philosophies, but Jim Kelly to me was, was the man back in the day, man. Right. So, you know, and another thing I think that got me into the martial arts, um, was my mother, of course, my mother, my mother, very, very strong and very much like. You know, if you don't succeed the first time, you get back in there until you do. So um, she challenged me, and she one time told me, like, yo, I don't think you've ever really read a book. And this was by, like, eighth grade. She's like, I think you read the back, and I think you make up what it is. Like, you don't really read books. And she put a book in my hand that completely changed my life. And um, I was like, this book was so thick. I was like, you uh, you think I'm going to read this? This is crazy. Like. And the book was the autobiography of Malcolm, of Malcolm X mm. by Spike Lee. I mean, by Alex Haley. Excuse me, not no Spike Lee, but by Alex Haley. And um, I read the first opening when it talked about the Ku Klux Klan surrounding his house. And I was I was in. I was in it. I was like, what? what's this? And I just started reading it, reading it, man. And, and there was a lot of stuff in there that Malcolm was saying that I could relate to. First of all, I'm reading it at the same exact time. That chapter, Mascot, man, I could relate to that because that was like almost exactly what I was experiencing being at this all-white private school. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and he had a line. He said, if you're interested in freedom, you need some judo. You need some karate. You need all the things that will help you fight for freedom. And I was like, oh, judo. And it hit me again. Like, oh, that's some judo. That sounds interesting. Karate. And, um, you know, there's other stuff in Malcolm's book, man, that he he, he advocated in his speeches because I started listening to his speeches. But he said, power only backs down in the face of more power. Um, and he says the enemy does not enter a strong man's house. And you know that image where he's he's holding a gun and he's at the window. And you're like, yeah, man, like 
to me, him, and then that put me on the Huey Newton, and it was like these really strong examples of these warrior men. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, and my, my Baba, who I was telling you about, he stopped wrestling with me like around, I think, 11th grade or so. I know we were wrestling one time, and I went I went too rough, and uh, and I really I heard his ribs, man. But he didn't want to admit it. And he ended up having to go to doctors, and the doctors was like, yeah, it looks like, you know, you're bruised a little bit i was real apologetic i felt bad about it then the, the the police were like i think they asked them questions about um i don't know if the doctor or the police but they were like yo are you getting abused by your your, your stepson and it was like and he was like laughed at it like no nah, like he's finally coming to age and he's finally learning you know how to how to defend himself so i think he was real proud about me but and proud for me or whatever um that I would say that was the last time, but it wasn't, man, because we still would just tussle, man. My mother had even, she put mats down in the basement and everything so we could, not just with him, but like my friends and everybody. But uh, he put me onto a movie um, called The Spook Who Sat By The Door. And man, when I saw that movie for the first time, and we're talking about like, this might have been like, it was re-released in 19, I think 93, like 20 years later than when it first came out, because it came out in 1973. And it was it didn't last very long in the theaters. It was like it became banned, man. And I, I one time I had um Sam Greenlee speak to one of my classes. Actually I had him two times, but he talked about how um, you know, he had to hide the film at one point. He had to escape, leave the country. And I mean, Sam Greenlee, man, you know, Ibashe him, man, because a great great honor. He he was the man. He was real down to earth and real like just Chicago and the way he would break down stuff for the kids and for me, I, I just, I enjoyed it. But I had watched this movie like more than The Last Dragon by that time. I watched that, The Spook Who Sat By The Door like over 70 times, man. And, mm. and um, uh, there's a scene in that movie, man, if you're familiar with it, where um, he he goes and he has to go against his judo instructor. And I think the cool part is anybody knows the storyline. It's about, you know, it's historical fiction. It's about them having to integrate the CIA and this guy who comes in there and he's real, like you don't even know that he's doing anything for the first couple scenes of the movie because he lays so low and he's so in the background. But um, he goes against this, this, ju this judo instructor and the judo instructor is like, you know, you got the same black belt as mine. You can't claim affirmative action and everything else that you people claim. And uh, they start to go to battle. And I'm not going to tell you what happens, man, but that scene, everybody should watch the spook who sat by the door. The join us on YouTube now. You can watch it. It was an awesome movie, man. And um, I wouldn't even put that with black exploitation because the film, it was just on a whole nother level to me. Mm -hmm. But um, that joint also made me think like, oh, what is this? And they said in the next scene after, you know, what happened, they said, well, he's been studying privately judo lessons for years. And I was like, oh, this is this dude. He was strategic, man. He was cold. He was calculated. And that was the type of image. Again, I, I was fascinated by him. And it's amazing how much movies have an impact on people's, you know, consciousness, man. So with that, now that's three times that judo has come to the forefront of your life. Did you yeah. did you train in judo first after karate? Yeah, I, I wish I could say so, man. But my first judo classes, man, they, um, you know, it was funny, man. They, the first class, they teach you how to fall, right? Side fall, back fall, all of that. But then after that, man, the rest of the classes, you get slammed, man. <laughs> you know? So it was like, I think it was a 90-minute class and 60 minutes to just getting slammed man and, and it's funny because at the time like karate didn't appeal to me in the beginning neither did judo um i didn't really get into judo until i started training sanukas ruju jitsu and the judo is mixed in with the takedowns um 
and uh, I kind of like with Sanukas, you, you there's a, several strikes before you throw the person. And I like that because I, in the fights I've been in, man, it's real hard to grab people. It's so hard to think in a real fight, man. And you, you really just have to be drilling things so much that it just falls into place. But um, in wrestling, I use a lot of moves that are, are similar to judo also. So, like, I I'm, um, I got into an altercation, and this was a teenager time, but um, we were on a field trip, and the dude tried to fight me in my hotel room. Um, and, man, I threw him, and everybody was like, what was that? And there was a wrestling throw. But, you know, it was the same throw that you have in judo. But, no, I, I didn't officially get into studying judo as a single art, though. Man. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. But um, but that kind of leads me into my next thought is like for our, our people who are listening, like I, I like to for people who've never done any martial arts, people come and ask me like all the time, like what what should I train with, you know? And it'll be like a mother or it'll be like uh, a child, um, whatever. Like, what can I get my child into? Um, and so anytime when they ask that, I'm like, well, what are you looking for? Like, I think if uh, a good place to start, like if you're a woman or and you want to get into martial arts, one of the good places to start is just with the, the conditioning. Um, like, I, I think these classes, you know, that where they go and you hit a bag and, you know, even back in the day it was Tybo. I think those are good places to start, man. Like, if you make sure that, like, you know, you keep your hands up and punch from the chin. Because sometimes I watch people hitting the bag and they throwing their punches from real low. And you don't te- they don't teach you, like, the, the basics of boxing in there, like the head movement and all that. But even that could be a good entry level, you know, entry into it is where you go to these classes and you're trying to get conditioned and you punch on the bag for a while and you learn you know maybe how to kick the bag a little bit i think that's a good place to start um i have a lot of students who they do kung fu um and a lot of those forms and stuff are extremely difficult and in a very like i remember even with sanukas when i did sanukas rule uh, and i'm still training in that but man i i think i hated one of the most was the katas man the, the katas used to really bother me man um, I didn't like having to be patient and, and do and go through all these different moves. But now I realize like that was that was part of it. And and that's I think that's also what I want to say is like I started off wrestling was huge after uh, college, though. I realized like there was so much more to martial arts and I wanted to get into more of the deeper understandings of martial arts. I wanted to get into like the breathing. I wanted to get into the meditation. I wanted to get into the healing with the herbs. I wanted to get into all the other aspects. So, and there's so many different, I wanted the, the, you know, the philosophy and all that other stuff. So I started getting more into that. And that's when, um, uh, I stopped doing wrestling. Oh, I had gone and done, uh, MMA for a while too. I got into that. I was fortunate to be able to, um, when my grandmother passed away, she left me some money. I took that money and I went and, uh, was able to train at, um, uh, several different places. But, you know, one of the most significant, um, is I got to train at Master Lloyd Irving school for a while. And I loved that. I met a lot of great people over there. Um, but when I, at one point I said to myself, like, I'm gonna stop doing the MMA and everything. Cause I want to get into the, tra- the, what I thought at the time was the traditional martial arts. Um, and the traditional really meant like the Eastern martial arts. Um, and I, I can name some of those for, for your listeners so they can know what the different, uh, you know, Eastern martial arts are. So you, when you say Eastern, you mean primarily, uh, from Asia. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you're the Asian, Eurasian martial arts. Exactly. Okay. So those are like kung fu, taekwondo, um, like kickboxing, but more so like Muay Thai, judo. We talked about Brazilian jiu-jitsu um, is the groundwork that comes out of the jiu-jitsu. Shotokan karate. Um, there's Western boxing, uh, Muay Thai, sumo, kenpo, ninjutsu, 
kendo, uh, Jeet Kune Do, fencing. Um, and fencing, like people don't look at that, but you know, you look at Bruce Lee really spent a lot of time doing fencing because the footwork that comes out of there. Um, freestyle wrestling is, is enough. That's what I did. It's a lot. Kickboxing, um, Krav Maga, Kali, and Sambo, Sambo which is um, coming out of um, Russia. And that's what um, like uh, Khabib does if you follow um, MMA. Yeah, so these are like some of the more popular types of martial arts. And um, like if you get into Taekwondo, that means you're going to be into a lot of kicking. If you're into Judo, there's, there's no kicking. There's, there's throws, right? If you're into Aikido, then you're going to get like joint locks and you're going to get, uh, you know, some throws with that. Um, I think it's important to know what each martial art was designed for. Um, I remember Master Lloyd Irvin saying that like Taekwondo was designed to kick people off of horses, you know, back during these like feudal times. And so that's why a lot of the kicks are really high. Mm-hmm. But um, I've seen like when you're in a fight, if you're not confident with your kicking, you lift the foot off the ground, you're leaving your groin open or you're leaving that foot to be swept and all, you know, to be tackled or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, but each style, man, it has a lot of great things to it. And then every style, I think, has its limitations as well, man. Um, Let's go into the because um, I know I don't know how much I think we got a little bit of time left, but I mm-hmm. I want to go into the traditional African fighting or traditional African um, art forms. But so man, that that's like where the conversation for me gets real fascinating because it's not talked about at all, man. The um my teacher Dr. Asa Hilliard used to say like the target of slavery, colonization, segregation was not merely to steal African land and African labor, but the target was to steal African minds. And uh, I think Dr. Clark also said, you know, um, the European not only colonized the world, they colonized information about the world. So when I'm growing up and learning all of this, I never heard anything about like African fighters or African fighting styles. And um, when I started to do more research, and even if you read uh, Masutatsu's Oyama's book on advanced karate. Uh, he says that like martial arts, what is called martial arts, originated in Africa. And um, then also you hear there's a great book I recommend everybody read called Fighting for Honor by T.J. Desh Obi, and that's the history of African martial art traditions in the Atlantic world. And again, that's called Fighting for Honor. That book it shows the images from the oldest examples of recorded combat systems. And um, I imagine anywhere life began and you had two people, there had to be conflict and they didn't always solve it verbally. So I think like a combat system would be developed out of that. And but what we have is and I've traveled to uh, Egypt two times and uh, what they have there is the oldest recorded uh, examples of wrestling moves, throws. We're talking about like twenty eight hundred B.C.E on Governor Amenemhet's tomb in the province of Mahes, which is now Beni Hassan. The tomb has 500, I repeat, 500 illustrations of different fighting uh, moves and techniques. Um, and everybody talks about, well, not everybody, but people talk about the um, Buddha Rama, the, you know, this, this dark black man who brings, you know, martial arts to the East, mm-hmm. um, out of India, he's coming into Asia, you know, this whole myth with the, you know, the, the storyline that goes along with the um, Shaolin temples and all that other stuff. Um, but they don't have images that go this far back. And what you start to realize is that we had numerous different combat systems. And a lot of those were um, with colonization. We had to, su- they, they were suppressed. 
uh, part of like the government, even the new governments had to agree that they wouldn't acknowledge these combat systems. And just like with the spiritual systems where like I told a sister the other day my name and she's like, oh, you have a pagan name. And she's from Nigeria. And I'm like, I have a pagan name? Like that didn't even make any sense. Right. But it's the concept there that the same thing happened with the combat systems that they were like, your combat systems are savage. Your combat systems are backwards or they just don't work, which is kind of what happened with like with Capoeira is where like people who do MMA were like, yeah, that, you know, you might be able to use some of that to pass the guard, but that's not a real martial art. You know, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, Muay Thai, you know, wrestling, that's what you need for MMA. But they didn't really want to look at like that Capoeira came back. It came from an older system called Angolo. And Angolo is a more complete system. Um, and that, I mean, complete in terms of combat, man, it has knives in there, it has um, mm. axes. Mm. You look at um, Queen Nzinga, she practiced Angolo and she was a master of the axe. Um, and she practiced this uh, combat system. She was still fighting at the age of 70, 73, I think is what it said in one of the books that I read. Um, and even the concept of martial arts, I think that has to be addressed. And, you know, um, mass teacher Ashwa Crazy talks about this, mm -hmm. where um, Marshall comes from Mars, uh, the Roman god of war. Um, and we have numerous African deities of war, like African gods of war. Um, my name, Tashango, is it's, it's almost like an Americanized version of Ati Shango, which means with Shango. Shango was a deity in... Uh, is a deity in, in Nigeria for in the spiritual system of Ifa. And it's, uh, he's a warrior and he had double headed axes. He could, you know, channel lightning as, as the stories go. And he was named after a king who lived in Yoruba land, I think around 1070 AD. So, but he was about justice, man. He was about like, he was, you know, about fighting. In fact, he had even traded some of his stuff for, uh, with others to, to become more of a warrior. Um, and you can go back to Kemet, man. You got uh, uh, you got Montu. Montu was in Kemet was a falcon head or white bull with a black face, and that represented war. Um, you got um, Enhur, which is in Kemet, which was a lion-headed uh, deity with four feathers. Um, and you know you have going back to the Ifa. You have Ochosi was another one. He was the, the deity of guerrilla warfare. Um, he had an arrow that never missed. He would shoot it. And there's all these tales about, you know, him. Um, but you could just go through, man. Oh, yeah. Because, I, you know, that's the uh, the female energy. Uh, it's represented by a woman who wears red. And she masters the wind and the thunder. And she represents change. And she looks over the, the, the graveyards. Um, and this is all you could study this in the African spiritual systems. But, you know, and oh, yeah, was adapted for Storm in the... In the um, and the Marvel, you know, they use her, but that was based off of Oya probably. And um, like Sekhmet is another one in Kemet, was a lioness head uh, who had a, a, a thirst for blood. You had these different war deities, and it, like one might represent like long-term strategic war thinking. Another one was like a bloodthirsty one. And then, of course, you see, that, as you've talked about, the Greeks will come in here, and they'll do the same thing. Well, they'll have one deity or one person that they're honoring that represents a bloodthirst war and then another one that might represent like long term i think it was like athena and um uh, i'm trying to remember my greek mythology as well as i do other stuff but athena and um there was another one that they had that would represent like just bloodthirst but even with the story like haru haru is a warrior man like um and and asar's father they, they were warriors his uncle was a warrior um 
And then, of course, one that was honored in uh, Haiti was Ogun. And Ogun is also honored. You'll find Ogun all the way on East Africa and amongst the people in Sudan. They have Ogu. But all over different parts of Africa, you find this deity of war, of iron. Um, and this is who the Haitian and the Haitian Revolution with Cecile Fatima and um, Bukman Dadi, they were offering a pig up to Ogun before they went to war in the, in the Haitian Revolution. So is it... it Make it, for us to call it martial arts and give honor to Mars, it's like it could have been named after any one of these, man. It could have been, you know, Ochosi arts, or it could have been, you know, that's why you hear me say African combat science uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to those other things. But um, just to name different types of combat systems. So, like, um, you know, we have, like, all these different war societies that we know of, right? So, um, or that we should know of. And those war societies were, like, we have the Ibn Gala. The Ibn Gala were in Angola. And these were like warriors that were nomads. They moved all over. It, I think, you know, like there were things I had issues with the movie, the black Panther, but there were some things in there that I did. Like for the first time, I thought kids could see that we had a warrior tradition. If, you know, if you could talk more about it, but like you were near the weapons that they were using in there, even the scene where, um, and Jadaka, who they call King Killmonger, he, um, broke the spear. Like he was paying homage by him breaking the Asegai and making it into an Ikhwa, he was paying homage to Shaka Zulu. And the Ikhwa is the short spear, and they called it that, they say, because that's the sound it made when it pulled your your, your, your guts out, basically. Mm. What? Um, you want to say something, bro? No, no, go ahead. No, but I'm, I'm just saying, like, I think we look too much at Africa as monolithic in terms of, like, oh, you know, I remember saying to the kids, like, with the Ibn Gala, they practice Kaluvia, which is the art of deception. And the kids are just like, they were having trouble grasping that. They're like, but, you know, that's so much different than the Nguzu Sabo. You know, we should be this, that, and, and and it's like, yes, that's how we operate internally. But externally, you know, Kaluvia, it, that art of deception, that's the same thing the art of war is saying. Like, the first thing in warfare is deception. If you look at Angola or the Capoeira, the being able to kick from multiple angles, it that's good for fighting multiple opponents. And a lot of it, too, you're using so much of your feet. It could be because your hands are shackled, right? And you're enslaved. That's a good system for you to be moving around. And, you know, in boxing, they say it's the punch that knocks you out that you don't see. Well, it's like with this, you know, it's the kick that you don't see. Mm. And, um, man, they showed even on one of these shows where they show who's got the hardest kick. It showed that Capoeira had the hardest kick. And you're talking about using your whole body, momentum. And it fit into their spiritual system because their spiritual system said the ancestors are down below and they walk on their, their, their hands. So when you start walking on your hands, you're you're quicker to channel that energy and you're more in tune and in touch with them. But there's all these different war societies, the Cromanti, which I studied over on the east side, like in Sudan, in ancient Nubia, they had the Garamanti. And the Garamanti, they, they, some people believe are the same people who migrated up and were the ones who fought. Um, and they later became um, like Hannibal's people, man. They later became that group of people that's modern day Tunisia. But back then it was Carthage, the Carthaginians. The Garamantes. And then now you look, but we go all the way over in uh, West Africa. You got the Cromanti. The Cromantes were the ones who, um, I mean, they were so that the Europeans said that do not capture the Cromantes. We do not want them. Don't bring them over. They're impossible. They're like, they're like zebras. You cannot tame them no matter what. And they could tell some of the Cromantes because when they would burn them on their chest with the, the hot iron, the Cromantes would poke out their chest and wouldn't make any noise. So they knew that they were getting like these warrior groups. 
And when these Europeans are coming over and trying to colonize Africa, they, they don't want the warriors, really. They want they want the best rice farmers. They want the best, you know, so they can bring them to South Carolina. They want the ones they can use to grow indigo. They want the ones that, you know, are the ones who are building, like the architects. They want the ones, all the ones that can build up their society. But they were really, like, largely terrified by the Cromanti. And I, there's some people say that the Cromanti are the ones they were going to war with um, the Ashanti king, Nano Se Tutu. And the Cromanti um, killed Nano Se Tutu. And the Cromanti were captured collectively and sold to the British, um, I guess, for like a cheaper price. And the British bought him up and put him on a ship. And that ended up being like a huge mistake for them because by the time the ship got over to Jamaica, the, the Cromanti had already taken over the ship and they ran off in different directions. And they, they had they had made a pact with each other. Like if we spread out and we create these different societies, we'll be harder to overcome. And they, those Cromantes were Nanny, Compong, uh, Quajo, Quao. Uh, um, I think later one was called Johnny. He got that name. Um, but those Africans ran out and created the Maroons of Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And they descendants of these Cromanti. Later, Taki comes over too. But, um, I mean, we're talking about, like, these. they come from the warrior tradition. And Nanny's one of my favorites because, you know, she was about that life, man. If you look up Nanny of the Jamaican Maroons, you'll find out some great stuff, man. But the Makandas, the Azande, the Mandingo, the Razvi. Razvi is supposed to be the empire that came before the Zulu. Um, these these were like warrior societies. Um, in 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 Mexico, they changed the name. They, they wouldn't even call them Mandingos or Mandings. They 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 called them uh, Diablos because they were like they would terrorize the plantations, destroy the plantations immediately. Um, and that's that's the whole African legacy they don't they don't really want us to know about. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. But inside of each one of these war societies, you had that you had fighting systems. So and also in the fighting systems, you had the ones that were designed to kill, and then you had to have the the, the sportier ones that the kids could train in so that they could become good at the the, the more uh, you know the the warrior ones. So like you looked at the Zulus, they might do Zulu stick fighting, but that was for the kids when they're young so they could be just amazing later on when it comes to using that the, the Iqbal I was talking about before and their shields. Um, so if we look at like the um, the systems underneath that that were designed for training like more of a sport and like the fist fighting or the kicking and the wrestling, then there's many different types of African combat systems all over Africa. There's the Biafran um, art of Magba, and I might pronounce these wrong, man. Um, there's the Ngolo, like I just said before, but Kendeka, Sangwa, and Benebe, Kokoa, Jogo de Capoeira, we said, Dame, some of these Lama Blanche, they're practiced in the Caribbean, like they're, they're different styles down there that came over from Africa. The Eke, the Nguni, uh, the Istunga, the Lam. Lam is like huge, man. I got the, when I took my students to Senegal, they got to see the, the, the wrestlers practicing on the beach. And these are the biggest, most strongest brothers I've ever seen in my life. And they're not lifting any like weights. They're lifting each other, man. And their throws are awesome, man. And that Elam is huge over, over in Senegal, but um, Dambe, Lute, um, the Zulu boxing is called, um, I'm gonna pronounce this wrong, but Ishibakela, um, uh, Jigidibo or Aki or Kin is something that was practiced amongst the Yoruba. Um, knocking and kicking is something that you hear about in America, but also it, uh, it's called Kuganga and Nameteka. Um, Akofo is a combat art in Ghana, and Gudo, um, 
is a combined system of the Luau and South Sudan, Kenya, and Tanzania. And even in the Ngudo system, if you look at it, it breaks down. Like Matuil is the throwing and immobilization. I apologize if I'm pronouncing these wrong because I have not studied any of these um, beyond reading about them. But um, Adeni is advanced kicking. There's Rod, which means takedowns. Magtahel, which is lifting leg takedowns. They have Alag, which is ground escapes. The Hog, which is palm strikes. Kaj, which is biting with the teeth. Dodge, which is choking. Dwaj Jing, which is arm breaks. And it's just, it shows that like we had, uh, we have even now all of these different things. But the problem is like when society has taught people in Africa that what you had is inferior, then you'll start to see where in Africa they're teaching Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or they're teaching Taekwondo or teaching Judo or they're teaching these other um, combats, but they won't teach their indigenous. And even the elders are like, what in the world? Like you're embracing this stuff, but we already did all this. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my dreams, you know, would be to this. There's, there's a, a great martial artist called Hati Kalindi. And I've had the pleasure of meeting him on a couple occasions. He's very, very brilliant. But he's traveled throughout Africa and he's trained in many of these different styles. Um, and another person I like a lot is um, Michael Jai White. Um, I like him. He's got eight different black belts, but I think he's like a martial art nerd like me type thing where he like studies these different things. And he's not afraid to like speak up on what he knows to be the truth about the martial arts systems. Um, he was just installed in Ghana. But I would like it if like we had a show or something where these two martial artists, Hati Kalindi and Michael Jai White, could travel throughout Africa and study in these systems and make these systems more well known to people around the world. And, you know, you know, people say mixed martial arts, but all martial arts have been mixed for a long time. Mm-hmm. But and, you know, take things from different places. man. Honestly, that's a great idea because because it's not popularized and because it's been stigmatized so much, um, we, we don't even think it exists. You know, all we know about is, you know, the Asian systems from the movies, the way that's been popularized over the years. That's pretty much all we have an idea about yeah. is, you know, combat systems from Asia. Yeah, that's, that's true, man. But I don't I don't want to. Um, I, I agree 100 percent. I want us to really push that. But I also want us, because every time I start talking about, like, I noticed this, I'd say something um, about, like, I want our people to appreciate and honor Africa. And then they'd be like, well, what about our, what our people did here? I want us to be able to see the connections and and honor the, the black martial artists who went over and fought in these wars and then studied the, the, the martial arts over there and then brought it back and taught it to the people in the community. You see, you see what I'm saying with that? Mm-hmm. So like, and I want there to be a strong connection between the traditional, when I say traditional now, I'm talking about traditional African combat systems and a connection between all the people in the past who had studied the other systems and became masters at those systems. Um, and I've been fortunate, I study um, Snooker's Root Jiu-Jitsu under um, Professor Lus Penn. And he's an awesome instructor. I, I studied with him at Kazako for um, all, about six years. And um the name of the spot was, it meant family. And it's him and his wife were on this spot for 30 years. But um, he was very much open to inviting other people. And he was very much open to talking about the martial artists that he came up with and the ones who came before him. So um, like to honor some of those, man, I like to call and say some of their names and point those people out and just have people do additional research on those. Is, is that cool, man? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, brother. So um, like I Sanukis was started by Doc Moses Powell, man. So I definitely want to honor him. Anybody knows Doc Moses Powell was the man in terms of um, 
martial arts, you know, you listen to another show right here, African Liberation Media, and you can hear um, more about Sanukas. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more in a second about that, hopefully. But there's Ronald Duncan, um, Vic Moore. If you look up Vic Moore, there's a video on, on YouTube now called The Man Who Beat Them All. And um, Vic Moore went against Chuck Norris. He went against Bruce Lee. Um, I said Jim Kelly before. Um, Ron Van Cleef, man, I, I highly recommend. I read a book on him uh, called The Hanged Man. And um, Ron Van Cleef, he was actually, um, he was lynched, man. He was hung by his neck when he was going down to become a Marine. And he survived it. And um, and he ended up, you know, he went over in, in, in the Marines and everything. Came back, and but if you look at what, like, even a little piece from the book, it said that Ron Cleef would work out with Ronald Duncan in the morning. He practiced Sanuka's Ru Jiu Jitsu with Master Moses Powell in the afternoon. Then he would train Shotokan Karate with George Cofield and Tom the Puppet before going to train again at Peter Urban's dojo in Chinatown at night. And all of these guys were ex military guys who brought martial arts back from overseas, and largely, like, they would train martial arts all during the day. But then at night they were bouncers, so they were using this stuff, man. And it it was this is karate and all this back in the day. These guys were like fighting and showing their stuff on a regular basis. But um, Ron Van Cleef's story is awesome, and he was the instructor for Tarmok. And he has a book too called Black Heroes of the Martial Arts, which I think people should uh, try and find. Um, Grandmaster Anthony Muhammad, uh, who was the trains Wesley Snipes, um, Bill McLeod, also Tahari Cassell, Joe Hayes. Um, Master Dennis Brown, Soki Littlejar, um, Steve Muhammad with the invisible, they call the invisible fist, um, Ron Jeter, Kareem Abdullah. Um, in, in Atlanta, they got Baba Taji Nanji. Um, he, he's awesome. He's still doing a lot of great work. And I, I've met him on a couple occasions. He shared some great wisdom with me. Um, you, you also have, uh, in Baltimore, Shaha Mufundishi Masai. Um, you got, uh, Master Samuel Scott, who's in, uh, DC. Um, these are just like a few of the names, man. I could go on for a long time about all of these martial artists um, that they trained, man, and they, they came back and they taught people in the community and taught generations of people. man. So I definitely want to honor them. And I don't think they ever get enough credit because, of course, you know, if you watch the Vic Moore and you watch any of these joints, you'll see how they try to play all of the black martial artists to the side. They used to do that all the time in the competitions and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and, and I know you had a show on Sanukis, man, but um, that's, that's played a major art in me. That's helped me learn about all of these different other people, man, because my instructor would constantly bring these people up. And uh, he would constantly be quoting from uh, Grandmaster Moses Powell. Sanukis means, Sanukis would just mean simplicity through survival. And um, some of uh, Master Moses Powell's quotes would be like, he says, the best fighter is the one who has kicking skills, grappling skills, boxing skills. And the most important skill, the ability to remain calm in the midst of battle. And um, Master Moses Powell would say, like, if I touch you, I got you. Uh, he said, never let a self-defense situation turn into a fight. He said, wolves roll in packs. I use that one a lot with the kids because I say, man, like, I have a kid who comes in and is like, yo, you know, I want to I chest this out. And I'm like, nah, man, you're learning so you don't want to fight. Like, this is going to help you know that anybody you're fighting, you should assume some things. And one of those things is, number one, assume that they're not alone. And that's that whole wolves rolling packs thing. Like, assume that it might be one person in front of you, but there's like two or three waiting around to jump in. Another, like, I always assume people are on drugs. I always assume that pe- the person has a weapon. Um, and then you decide, like, do you really want to deal with somebody who 
is on drugs, has a group of people with him, and um, you know, and uh, and has yeah, like like I said, you just don't want to deal with somebody who has those type of things going on with them. Um, he also said a man's greatest enemy is his own self delusion. I find that like when martial arts, you'll see that it makes men like men always want to comment on every single fight. You saw that with the um, when when they the Mayweather versus um, uh, the, the McGregor fight. Everybody in Mama had a comment on that fight, but you're like, man, these people have no idea what what fighting is really about. They have no idea what boxing is about. No idea what MMA, because people wouldn't get as hyped about it. I mean, they're gonna make a lot of money off all of these that they keep building up. But basically, I'm saying is that men um, think that they can fight much better than they can. And you find like women can fight. They actually can fight better than they thought they could. And when they start off with martial arts, even with the sisters who have been dancing and stuff, as soon as I start showing them some submission grappling, they pick up the moves like right away. Um, the brothers, they have to they have a lot more to go through to try and get better and get skillful. Um, but Grandmaster Moses Powell said martial arts are 25 percent physical, 75 percent spiritual. Um and Sanukas is supposed to have the strength of karate, the agility of boxing, the speed of honest stick fighting, or uh, I trained in Balintiwak um, on Grandmaster Bobby Tabota would come um, and work with our, our place. Uh, joint locking, nerve attacks, it's supposed to have, ju it has judo in it, it has Aikido in it, it has um, Aiki Jiu-Jitsu, which is um, some of um, uh, what we were talking about before in terms of um, uh, the martial arts systems. But, um, yeah, Grandmaster Moses Powell was a student of Mackey and Judo. He studied under Professor V. Uh, he studied Wally J. Small Circle and Dr. Wombo and Grandmaster Lopez. So, you know, that's just the background on that, man. But, yeah, I've, I've learned so much more than I ever thought I would by studying these different combat sciences. And I'm talking about in terms of character development, in terms of um, situational awareness, man. I think those are like some of the first things you'll learn you just start looking at the world differently and you put yourself in a position where, um, you know, you, you're aware and you know, you're looking at people's needs. You're looking at, you know, how many exits there are. You count how many cars there are outside. It, and there's nothing wrong with that, man. It's just being more aware of your surroundings. Man. And I think it's even, it's good for the children with that because it says like, you shouldn't be that far from your parents. You know, 70% uh, of accidents, I think they say are in parking lots. So to children need to be closer to their parents in the parking lot. I teach the kids how to break out of grips if somebody grabs them. What do, what what's appropriate to say if somebody is saying that they're their parent and they're trying to get you out of some place and you know they're not their parent. The amount of our children who are getting abducted, man, it's like absolutely vital that they learn how to fight and then that they learn how to defend themselves. Uh, shake. We definitely appreciate the vast knowledge that you dropped, brother, because you definitely did drop it. Um, especially towards the end, getting into the traditional African combat sciences um we're a little over time but uh i do want you to finish if you can give us uh you know a finishing statement and um you know also you know if you have any of these resources like the books that you gave out uh anywhere online uh where the people can find them uh definitely give that out too so they can go oh. and do more research yeah I, you know the books I would start with, in terms of learning about yourself and your legacy, man, I, a book that, you know, I recommend to everybody you've read, um, Standing at the Scratch Line um, by Guy Johnson is like a very good book mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. to understand the the warrior tradition that we have. And, um, you know, it's historical fiction, but it really is written so well that it will place you right in it. And 
that's one book I say everybody should get. Another book I think people should get is um, the one I mentioned called Fighting for Honor. That's by TJ Dash Obi. Um, it's an expensive book, but it's well worth it. Another one I think is really good. I read all of this guy's book. His name is Rory Miller. But he's got a book called Meditations on Violence. Um, and he does a comparison of martial art training and real world violence. Um, and he talks about the limitations in different uh, combats, uh, different styles of fighting that we've talked about. Um, just, I guess I would leave everybody with um, a couple great quotes. I also think everybody should read The Art of War by Sun Tzu, man. And I know there's like 40, 50 different, at least, translations of it. But um, he says, strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. Tactics without strategy is noise before the defeat. Um, I think that martial arts teach you to be more strategic, more tactical. Um, and uh, there's, there's a quote, too, that is from Dan Santo. He, he trained under... Um, well, he, he trained with Bruce Lee and then trained partly under him. But he says love is the highest art. In the ancient times, you trained so hard not for the sake of killing people, but the love of your mother, the, your father, your children, your tribe, and your body. It's the love of life. That's why we train so hard, so we can preserve life. And I think that's real important because, um, you know, it's the idea like, well, why, why train in martial arts? I don't want to hurt anybody. This, that, and that. It's, not, it's not about hurting anybody. It's about you being... Um, self-sufficient about you having self-confidence is about you knowing who you are and um being able if, if necessary to, to defend yourself if all you have is your hands um and your, and your feet and your elbows and your head and all that good stuff but um yeah man so i really appreciate this conversation today and um you know this is this is magnificent brother and i want y'all to keep up this excellent work because i know y'all will so but thank you thank you again i say well brother I definitely feel more enlightened every time I talk to you. And uh, yeah. the book that he recommended, Standing at the Scratch Line by Guy Johnson, I'm going to tell you, the brother put me onto the book, and it's one of my favorite books. Get the audio book because yeah, you, you will definitely, definitely enjoy it. The brother, we appreciate you for coming on. Once again, this has been the African Liberation Media Podcast. You can find us on our website, africaliberationmedia.com. You can also find us on social media at Africa Liberation Media, that's Facebook, Instagram, uh, BB48. BB48. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not job, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. You are buying your houses and fine clothes, does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.